Something I said two weeks ago uh, may have come across less clearly than I intended, and so I want to start out by trying to clarify that a little bit this morning. Uh, We were looking at 1 John 5, verse 10, and verse 10 says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And I mentioned at the time that one's assurance of faith doesn't come from looking and believing in him or herself. It is a matter of believing God. And I mentioned that when I tried to talk, not talk, but to type into my computer, believing in God and believing, I tried to type in believing God, believing his word, and just put it in as believing God. And my, my word processing uh, program didn't like that. It kept wanting to autocorrect to believing in God. Didn't want it to be believing God. And I made the comment that um, while it is true that we need to be believing in God, it is more than that that's required. It is also the believing of God. There are many who believe in God, but don't believe God's word. And there's a difference there. So the comment, it is that and more, may not uh, have sufficiently expressed the meaning. While it's true that men, women, and children must believe in God in order to be saved, it's also true that God must be believed in what he says. A true belief in God naturally produces a heart which believes him when he says that Jesus is the only redeemer of God's elect. There's a natural response there. And so if you truly believe in God, you believe that he is God, then it's going to be natural for you to believe what he says as well. And that's the point that John is trying to make here, and that's the point that I was trying to make. Not that you don't need to believe in God, you just need to believe God. But you need to believe in him, but believing in him produces a belief of him, of his word, and of what he says. And so I just wanted to clarify that. Um, I was trying to contrast um, saving faith with those who just simply believe that there is a God, but whose idea of who God is And what he wants is a matter of feelings or a matter of impressions and superstitions. Many of these folks are very serious about their beliefs. But those beliefs are not in harmony with the word of God. And so they don't really believe in God. Because if they did, they would believe his word. And not want their faith and their beliefs to be dictated by their feelings or their impressions or their superstitions. It's not uncommon to come across individuals who are very sincere and even convinced of the holiness of their belief or actions, 
even though they run contrary to God's will as revealed in his word. I know that sounds illogical, but it's true. It happens all the time. You find people who who are sincere in their belief that there is a God, and they believe that he is God. But they're doing things that are contrary to what he teaches in his word, and yet they still believe that they have a sincere belief in God as God. Um, And that, that conflict between what he says he wants and what is true and what they believe is true doesn't make a connection in their minds or their hearts. They believe in God, but they don't believe God when he speaks in his word. And it's that very problem that John was addressing here in 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. Those who claim to be advanced teachers in spiritual matters. That's what they were claiming. We know things about God that you don't know, was their claim. We have the deeper understanding, the deeper knowledge of who God is in his word. And that deeper knowledge is in complete contrast with what God himself says. And we don't believe the word of God concerning who Jesus is, is what they were saying. And John is saying, you must believe what God says about Jesus if you believe in God. Those two things have to go together. You can't say, I believe in God, but I think he's lying about Jesus. Or he's misrepresenting who Jesus is. John Calvin says, the apostle, after having reminded us that God deserves to be believed much more than men, now adds that we can have no faith in God except by believing in Christ. Because God sets him alone before us and makes us to stand in him. So Calvin summarizes it there in that way. Now, last week, Mr. Brillhart made a passing comment um, that you may or may not have noticed, but I certainly noticed it. It was towards the end of his message, and he didn't put it in these exact words, but uh, uh, he said something to the effect I'm leaving the difficult part here at the end of 1 John 5 for the pastor to deal with next week. I didn't say it quite like that. He said, I'm going to let him take up this subject next week. But he knew, and uh, I knew, what he was talking about. This difficult section that's before us this morning. And there are three things that make this section difficult. The language, the topic, and the lack of time to deal with it all. We live in an age where anything that takes more than five minutes to explain puts a strain on our powers of concentration. We have become accustomed to images just flying by and the most critical and complex ideas and events being reduced to sound bites uh, that can be digested in a matter of seconds. And... That's the way things are explained to us, and that's the way we're used to hearing things. Um, We're talking about great events in the world, and they've got to fit in, uh, you know, 30 seconds on the news, and then we're on to something else. And you've got to grasp the whole of that and understand it and be ready to move on at that point. Now, while that may be 
the growing habit of our time and circumstance. It's not necessarily the best approach to God's word, which we're instructed to study and to meditate on by its author. That is to dwell on it, to ponder it, and think about what we're reading and what's being said. Think about it carefully and at length. Neither is it always in the best interest of those studying God's word to reduce its instructions and its teaching to sound bite-sized takeaways. There's a time and a place for that, but there are other things that need careful consideration. In the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit is using its inspired author to teach about specific things. And he says in Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. It's a great truth. But after setting this doctrine down, the author then goes on to add, and this is verses 11 through 14, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Not about this, we have five bullet points, and when we get through these five bullet points, you'll have it and be ready to go. No, he says about this, we have a lot to say, and it's hard to explain. And it was Peter who confessed that in the writings of Paul, one found some things that are hard to understand and that require careful and steady study. You can't just grasp these things in a moment. It takes study. And the truth is that the truth is sometimes difficult. And to give a thorough, satisfying, practical, and quick explanation of a passage is a difficult thing sometimes. And this is one of those passages. But we're going to do our best in the time we have. So look at verses 16 and 17 here. 1 John 5, verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, if that statement doesn't cause you a little pause, you're not paying attention. You're not listening. If you think just reading that, you've got it and you're ready to go on to the next part of the, of the epistle, you're, you're not listening to what's being said here. Now, what John has done is he has set before us in this chapter some certain benefits of faith. And the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, with all that it implies, is blessed with these certain benefits. And they include, first of all, being called the children of God. That's the first one he addresses. That's Burke back in verse 1. 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. 
So the first benefit is if we believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and all that that implies, then we have the blessing of being called the children of God. The second benefit that John refers to is overcoming the world. This is in verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God, right? So we're going back to the first verse. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes, what? That Jesus is the Son of God. You see, it takes us back to that first benefit. The first benefit is we believe, and now we're the children of God. The second one is, if we believe that about Christ, we are now overcomers, overcoming the world. The third benefit is that we possess eternal life. This is in verses 10 and 11. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. So now... We believe this, we are the children of God, we have uh, the, the blessing that God has bestowed on us of overcoming the world, and now we also have this promise of eternal life. The fourth benefit is in verses 14 and 15, and having his or her prayers heard and answered is the fourth benefit. Our prayers are heard and answered. And you see it there. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So these four benefits. And the last one is this blessed benefit of prayer, effectual prayer. And now under that benefit, of effectual prayer, there is something added. And it's the privilege that John speaks of in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing, or sister, committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give to him or to her life. The benefit is that Christians, those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if they see and therefore know or they're perceiving that a brother or a sister is sinning a sin that is not to death, the words leading are are implied there, he shall be requesting it and God will be granting to him or her life. That is a powerful promise, and we need to understand what it means. Calvin says, The apostle extends still further the benefits of that faith which he has mentioned, so that our prayer may also avail for our brethren. The apostle exhorts us to be mutually solicitous for the salvation of one another, 
And he would also have us to regard the falls of the brethren as stimulants to prayer. Let's talk about this benefit of praying. The benefit, the privilege, and the duty of praying for each other. Because that's what this is about. And the first thing to note here is the privilege and duty that God has laid on us to hold one another up before the throne of grace. We have what we call corporate duties. And this is one of them, to be praying for one another. And especially, John says, if we see a brother or a sister sinning. Now, often the first impulse when we see that or hear about such things, the first impulse is of another sort. To offer criticism or to gossip and to talk to others about it. But beloved, it is praying for them that we are privileged and obliged to do. While those other things are forbidden, particularly among those who are to love one another because we are begotten by God through our faith in Jesus Christ. If I hear of the faltering or the stumbling of a brother or a sister, my first reaction is not to be critical. My first reaction is not to gossip with it, about it with someone else. My first reaction is to lift that one up in prayer, to hold them up before the Lord, and to pray for them out of love for them. We're to bear one another's burdens, beloved, not bear down on one another. I'm going to try to say this without stuttering. Seeing a spiritual sibling sinning is a sin, or sinning a sin. I couldn't do it. (laughs) Seeing a spiritual sibling sinning a sin. What is John talking about there? Well, it's the second thing to note, and it's, the fact that this is first-hand knowledge of the matter. Not something rumored, not something suspected, but the confirmed practice of some sin that is not deadly. And you must be very careful about what sort of eye you are employing when you look at this sin. It must be one that can see the beam in your own eye before it marks the speck in the eye of your brother or your sister. Once the sin we see in others is established, one of the first things we have to take a look at is ourselves because often the sin we see in others is the sin we would see in ourselves if we looked carefully. John Cotton, Puritan commentator, says we might even find something greater. If God did not restrain us, for we all have the same root of evil and should break out as bad as any if God did not hold us back. What does he mean by sinning a sin? Well, that's really pretty easy to explain. Let's take lying. Lying is a sin. That is, it is identified as a sin by God in his word. If anyone is found lying, 
he or she is sinning that sin. That's what it is to be sinning a sin. Sinning that which is described as a sin. To be sinning a sin is to be in the practice of such a thing. For this brother or sister, whatever the sinning is comprised of, we may and we ought to be praying, asking God to grant them life. Well, what are we praying for when we're praying for their life? What life may we look to, to the Lord to be granting to this brother or this sister? And I believe that what John is telling us here is that it is the triumphant, overcoming life that John has been referring to since he began this letter. That life. That life that, is, that overcomes by faith, that overcomes sin, overcomes the world by faith. Remember what he had just said back in verse 4. This is 1 John 5, 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In verse 11, he says this. This is 1 John 5, 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What we are requesting, and that's what's intended here, a request, is that this one who has life will have all the strength and the grace of that life and find the way to triumph over sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. His sin or her sin through Christ. That confessing his or her sin and finding God faithful and just, he or she will be forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness because of the remission of sin in Christ Jesus, and then triumph over that offense, over that sin. This is not, beloved, an invitation to name it and claim it on behalf of another. It is a reminder of the duty of love that we have toward one another. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now here Paul calls for the spirit of gentleness and humility as we we bring the concern that we have for this brother or this sister before the throne of grace. And what we're praying for is that they will have the strength and the blessing to triumph in Jesus Christ over this sin that is not leading to death, but is still sin and needs to be dealt with in his or her life. And that brings us to this question of sins that lead to death or not to death. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has divided this out and said that there are venal and mortal sins, and they have a whole complex description of how to tell which is which. But we believe that is not the correct understanding of God's word here. 
The first question that comes to mind, I think, at least in the heart of any experienced Christian, when they read this is, doesn't Paul say that the wages of sin is death? Doesn't Paul say that? Doesn't matter what the sin is. The wages of sin is death. The wage of one sin is death. The wage of ten sins is death. What, what is this sin that doesn't lead to death? Well, your answer to the question is, doesn't Paul say that? The answer is yes. Paul does say that. He certainly does. Among the faithful, Calvin says, this ought to be an uh, indubitable truth, that whatever is contrary to God's law is sin, and in its nature, mortal. For where there is a transgression of the law, there is sin and death. So if that's true, then what does John mean when he talks about sins that lead and don't lead to death? Well, notice what John reminds you in verse 17. He says there, just as a reminder, all wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. Well, what sin is that? The sin which is still wrongdoing, but which does not lead to death. I believe the answer to that question, beloved, is that this is the sin. Your sin and mine, whose sentence has been covered by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. The sin in and of itself is worthy of death. But the penalty has been paid. And so for me as a believer, or for you as a believer, if you enter into sin, it still requires death. The only difference is the penalty of death has been absorbed on your behalf by Christ on the cross. And so for you, it does not lead to death. But it is still wrongdoing and needs to stop. Because it is that sin that took Christ to the cross. In 1 John 4, 9 and 10, John writes this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son to the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Morgan says, it is a sin into which a believer may be betrayed, while yet the divine life is not destroyed within him. Why not? Because the death required by that sin was paid for by Jesus Christ. Now, I need to confess that there are some who see this differently. They don't limit the term brother to fellow believers, but they expand it to include all men and women. And those who are of this opinion also believe that the pardonable sins are any such that may be forgiven by justification. And these see the prayer as being for the salvation of the lost soul. 
And there are some who hold to that position. Um, Calvin and others don't. And we would say with Calvin that uh, we would let each understand it as uh, God lays it on their heart. In the end, it really doesn't make much difference to what's being taught here. But for me, I prefer the tighter understanding here, believing that it's more consistent with the context and the whole of Scripture. As Calvin says, this is a view of sin in the light of God's grace, which pardons guilt through Jesus Christ. And that's the sin that does not lead to death. But it's still wrong. It is still wrongdoing. And that's John's point. So then, what is the sin that does lead to death? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 12, and verses 31 through 32, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And keep in mind what John has just said. Back in 1 John 5, verses 6 and 8 now, this is he who came, to bear, to came, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. So put that together with what we just read from Jesus. Jesus said, the one sin that cannot be pardoned is the sin against the Holy Spirit. When he speaks the truth, if he is called a liar, then that is, that is the sin that is unpardonable. And now you come to here, to First John again, and he is saying in this, who is it that testifies? Well, it's the water and the blood and the spirit. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Jesus himself says in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him or on him. So that wrath, that sin that leads to death, is the one that rejects the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, sent to be the Redeemer of men. To offer himself for the propitiation of our sins. The sin of willful unbelief by those who reject the message of the gospel. Most commentators believe that that is the sin that leads to death. And the one that John says, I'm not saying pray for the one who is in that condition. It's described elsewhere in scripture, especially in in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4, we read there, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard about Christ, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. In chapter 6, 
verses 4 through 6. It says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And then in chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That in section ends in verse 31 with it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It would seem that in the commission of the sin, there are three elements required. Some degree of illumination. There's some degree of illumination. The Holy Spirit has revealed to the heart some part of God's truth, some, some degree of God's truth. Then a full and bitter rejection. And thirdly, a spirit of malice in that rejection. And where those three things are present, it appears from what John says here, the person who's in that condition, we shouldn't be praying for. But what about the brother or sister who stumbles into sin? They're not to be put into that category. Now, the tendency here is to exhaust our attention on the sin that leads to death. But that's not John's main point here, beloved. And it's important, and he feels compelled to speak of it, but the primary point involves the Christian's practice of brotherly love, which requires you and me, whenever we see a fellow believer succumbing to sin, to pray for that one that he or she might gain the promised victory and be delivered out of the jaws of the enemy by the power of Christ in them, by their living by faith and not by their feelings and emotions and passions, but by the word of God and believing the word of God and putting their, their confidence in the word of God. Now, just some general observations as we think about that, as we think about praying for one another when we stumble. First of all, it is to be done without curiosity, without censorship, or without envy. By curiosity, I mean we're not looking to hear about somebody stumbling because we just can't wait to hear about what happened and and all the little details of that sin and how they're sinning. There's no interest in that, in a genuine, loving approach to this subject. There's no censorship. That is an immediate um, jump to condemnation. And there's no envy. Envy in the fact that uh, they seem to be getting away with what I can't get away with. In Luke 6.37, Jesus said, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. 
Peter said in 1 Peter 4.15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as an evildoer. Those are all pretty serious, aren't they? What do you have there? You have murderer. You have thief. You have uh, one who practices wickedness. And the fourth one is what? A busybody in other people's matters. I like the King James translation there. A busybody in other people's uh, matters. It's in the same category as murder, thievery, and the practice of continual evil. A man, woman, or child may fall or stumble into sin and be, as Morgan says, neither a hypocrite nor an apostate. One can be perfectly sincere in his or her profession of faith and still be beguiled into an offense. A person's principles and convictions can be dimmed by temptation, but that doesn't make them an apostate who abandoned the truth to embrace error with malice. It can happen. And, and that initial stumbling can give evidence that there was no faith to begin with, and it can, it can fester into that. But it's not to be presumed. We're to look on these things with a spirit of humility, proper fear, and animated compassion. In Colossians 3, 12 through 13, Paul said, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also must you forgive. And we must do it with discretion, a spirit of willing aid, and with prayer in mind. What can we do? How can we help you? How can we help you to overcome this? That's the spirit in which we approach it. I'm praying for you. What can I do to help you? Don't underestimate the power of your prayers. Remember what's said here by John. You will give them life by praying for them. But the question is, why should God do that for any of us? Because you ask for it. Number one is because of his son's sake. If we believe that we are those for whom Christ has died, suffered and died, then we should have some compassion on each other and have hope in regards to one another before the Lord. We should also do it to knit together. Now, sometimes things just happen in ways that you don't anticipate, but because of God's providence, they come together in unexpected ways. This week, earlier last week, I should say, the session met and determined, without any consideration of where we were here in 1 John 5, the session determined that we should share something with you about a brother and a sister. And as this message unfolded, it left me amazed that 
the Lord would have brought these two things together, and yet it's the way he works. And so I'm going to read to you this statement from the session, and I hope you will listen very carefully. For a number of years now, we have been using a membership covenant for the reception of new members. It encompasses those questions that have been asked in one form or another since the church began. At the end comes the question to the congregational membership, and it is this. And do you, the members of this congregation, by the grace of God, our covenant, excuse me, by the grace of God, to be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all private and personal duties which become you as Christians and as members of Christ's church, as well as in all relative duties and all public duties, endeavoring to adorn the profession of the gospel by your conversation, including praying for and loving these your brethren according to Christ's command, including praying for and loving these, your brethren, according to Christ's command. Today, the session is presenting to you an urgent matter of prayer on behalf of the Sawoya family and asking you to lift the matter before the Lord on their behalf, as you have promised. We don't bring this matter to you lightly, and we want to urge you to be careful to observe the exercise of proper Christian discretion in this matter. And I told Bill and Melanie I was only going to read this and there wouldn't be any other comment, but I just need the comment reflecting back on our message. Without curiosity, without envy, without gossip, That's what we mean there. The marriage between Bill and Melanie Sawoya has reached a critical point. And we would covet your prayers for both Bill and Melanie and their children. Please pray for the healing and restoration of this relationship as a testimony to the love that exists between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church, as marriage is designed to exhibit and for the blessing and peace of the family. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This is the opportunity for you to put into practice What John has told us is our privilege. And I would ask you to please pray for them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for its instruction. And Father, we have before us a serious situation. And Lord, it is our earnest prayer that you would undertake on behalf of Bill and Melanie. Lord, you would help them to overcome the things that have arisen between them, overcome them by their faith.
that, Lord, we might see this marriage restored by your grace. Father, we lift them up in love. And, Lord, we know that there are other issues and situations in which we can put into practice what we have received from you this morning through John. And we pray, Lord, that as a loving people, we will be praying for our brothers and sisters when we see them in sin. That not, Lord, that uh, we may in any way uh, revel in it or, Lord, take any kind of satisfaction in it or, or Lord, be in any way self-satisfied. Father, we might do it with a sense of urgency and love for them and for their welfare. May we pray for one another that we might be a body of believers and see that body overcoming, overcoming sin, overcoming the world by faith. That, Lord, you might be glorified, that Christ might be honored, that, Lord, we might be blessed along with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, hear us now for Christ's sake. For it's in his name we pray.